Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 51 Communes Rising. Well, it's been a while since we made any forward progress. I imagine you're just thinking I should stop recapping things and just get on with it. What happens next? Well, let me take you back to the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, really, bear with me a bit. We will get moving on again, I promise. Sort of. The Romans had founded cities all over their empire sometimes taking over existing cities, and other times founding them from scratch. Nowhere was this more true, and nowhere were there so many cities as in the Italian peninsula. That was one thing. In Italy, there were more cities to begin with. Then there was the question of their survival through the early Middle Ages, through the various barbarian invasions and famine and pestilence and natural calamities. Fun, fun times. They didn't really flourish, of course, and at times cities were either completely destroyed or deserted, but they held on. It was, in particular, the church that helped them pull through. When Italy was abandoned to its own destiny by the crumbling Western Empire and by the Eastern Empire, it was the bishops who moved in to fill the power vacuum. Then the feudal system came along. Now, we all know more or less how the feudal system worked. If you were the average Joe, or Giuseppe in our case, and you were a farmer or an artisan, you would have a lord ruling over you. That local lord would have a higher lord, and he or in some cases she, some rare cases, would have a lord above them, and so on, all the way up to the Holy Roman Emperor in the north, the Pope in the centre, and the Norman Duke in the south. Now, the average Giuseppe would have very little knowledge of what went on above his local lord, nor would he really care. He was busy trying to survive. He did have to deal with the local lord, pay his taxes, and, when needed, offer sentry service or help fix parts of the castle, and more importantly for Giuseppe, the walls that would protect him and his family in times of invasion, which, as we have seen, was quite frequent. Norman raids, Saracen raids, a descending imperial army, or just the next town or city on. Violence could come from any direction. No. Aside from his direct feudal lord, up in his castle on the top of the hill, the average Giuseppe knew no other, except perhaps in vague stories that trickled down to him. This gave the feudal lord almost absolute power over those he ruled, and that was not always a good thing, because that lord could be a pretty nasty piece of work at times. And then there was very little chance of getting any justice. It would have been very hard to appeal to a higher power 
so far away and far removed. So the peasant, the artisan, the little merchant would look around for help, and who would they find? Well, others like him, other peasants, other artisans, and other little merchants. That was how things developed. If the little guys couldn't look out for each other, who else was going to? Among the little people looking out for each other, you could also find the local parish priest, who was quite happy to get involved, either out of Christian desire to look after his flock, self-interest or preservation, or just the desire to stick it to the local lord. Other times, it was the clergy itself doing the oppressing. This whole system worked even better in the cities, where you could look around and see a lot more people. You could even get together with those who practiced your same profession and create a corporazione, a corporation or trade guild, which would become a major player in the future administration. If you were particularly daring and had a little bit of starting cash to invest, you could get into the merchant business, rise up the social ladder, and become even more powerful. All of these folks. The Giovannis and Giuseppes and farmers, the Smiths, the cloth merchants, the doctors, the apothecaries, and so on and so forth, were putting in their lot together. They were doing something in comune, in common, with the others, the chives, the citizens, of the cities and towns. And that, my dear, dear listeners, is how we came to the communes. As is the case with many historical phenomena, it's sort of hard to pinpoint the exact moment of origin of the communes. It's not like everyone woke up one morning and said, "Hey, let's get rid of the feudal era and be a commune." The actual use of the term commune to define a city with a certain degree of independence didn't actually seem to have appeared until about the 1120s, when many of the most important cities. Had been enjoying varying degrees of independence for decades. In general, the point taken into consideration to mark the start of a communal experience in a city was the year in which the city first elected its consuls. Now, wait a minute! There, I hear you saying consuls. I've studied my Roman history, and I know consuls. They were the ones who were elected to rule Rome for a year, starting at the time of the Republic. The Quintus Fabius Maximuses and so on. What are you dragging them out now for? Well, among these groups of chivas, these citizens, who were banding together and communing, there emerged certain men, the warni womini, the good men, who would represent the others, the chivas, and their relations with the feudal lords, with the priest or the bishop, maybe even with the emperor. In time, these good men. Came to hold a one-year elected office, and what better name to use than the good old consul? They would be elected by a representative sort of parliament called an arengo. The number of consuls could vary from two or three all the way up to around twelve. Needless to say, if you were dirt poor, you could have no say in this parliament. Although you could do a little rabbling, but that was usually guided by one faction or another. The consuls, in the name of the arengo, would oversee construction works, 
run finances, call out the army, organize markets and fairs, and administer justice. They would be required to abide by the statutum, the communal statute, that acted as a local law under the existing imperial jure, or lex, the imperial law. It is the election of the first medieval consuls that is often used to mark the start of the communal experience in the various cities, as we mentioned. This came about for most cities in the last quarter of the 11th century and the first quarter of the 12th. So, for example, Pisa kicked things off with the first recorded consuls in 1081, Milan in 1097, Genova two years after that, Ferrara in 1105, Lucca, one of the main anti-Canossa strongholds, in 1115, the year the Countess Matilda of Canossa died, then Bologna in 1123, just to name a few, obviously. This particular period coincided with the height of the investiture controversy, in which the emperor, the main feudal lord in the area of northern Italy, the Kingdom of Italy, was busy fighting it out with another feudal lord, the Pope. With the main contenders often looking the other way, and at times looking to the cities for support to help in the fight by giving them concessions, the communes, which weren't quite yet called that, managed to flourish. The other big player in the investiture controversy was Matilda, Countess of Canossa and Margravine of Tuscany. Once again, history is not made up of lines drawn in the sands of time that neatly limit one period or era from another. But the death of the Countess in 1115 could be taken as a good enough starting point for many communes in her lands. She had died with no heirs, and from then on, the area would be officially ruled over by Germanic overlords, who, however, remained far away and did not reside in the area as Matilda had. This left the cities with even more freedom. All of this attempt at pinpointing the birth of the communes has to blatantly ignore that many cities had started on their way to independence long before the period in question. Venice, for example, which would really deserve a few episodes on its own, and it probably will get them, first independently elected a doge all the way back in 726. More official recognition came from Emperor Lothar II in 840, back in the Carolingian period, and the recognition from the Byzantine Empire came in 993. Having mentioned Venice, we might also want to mention the other cities that came to be known as the Maritime Republics, i.e. Venice, Amalfi, Genoa, Pisa, Ancona, Gaeta, Noli and Ragusa. These cities did rather well due to their position along the coast. The Goths, the Lombards, the Franks and even the Normans all came down the inland part of the peninsula staying more or less away from the coastal settlements. Not that they ignored them or weren't interested in them, but they knew that if you want to not only capture but also hold a port city, you need a significant navy. And none of the invaders mentioned had one. Amalfi, like Venice, 
was one of the earliest to gain independence in 836. Unfortunately, like Gaeta, the proximity to the Normans meant that their fortunes would not last as long as those of the others. Genoa, Venice and Narli would make it all the way to the end of the 18th century with the arrival of the Napoleonic armies, and Ragusa all the way to 1808. The mention of the maritime republics leads us to note the growing importance of the merchant class we mentioned a bit earlier. Now the Roman roads, built better than a lot of things we build today, were still around, but in dire need of repair. And there was really no one with the means, both financial and skill-wise, to do something about it. Plus, a road, a long road, would require a certain level of unity on a national level, or at least large regional level. And we have seen that that was far from the case. Also, you could very easily run into bands of brigands and lose everything. So, if you wanted to move, you'd have to hit the water. And things there were a little bit better. Not that there weren't pirates even along the rivers, but you could move more and heavier goods. Using the Po River with a series of affluents and canals, for example, you could go all the way from Turin down to the sea, and from there to the Mediterranean and beyond to Constantinople and the east. On the way, that meant passing such cities as Pavia. Piacenza, Milan, Parma, Reggio Emilia, Modena, Bologna, and Ravenna. A local industry developed, glass in Venice, as well as shipbuilding like in Genoa and Pisa, and weapons and armor from Brescia and Bergamo. Trade fairs moved from local events to almost nationwide and international moments, with important ones in Piacenza, Bologna, Ferrara, Trento, and Bolzano in the far north. If you did manage to get a bit of capital together, buy first one ship and then a fleet, you could become a very powerful member of the administration of the rising communes. Indeed, the more powerful merchants became part of what was known as the popolo grasso, the fat population, the higher middle class, if you will, before a middle class actually existed. Indeed, in the communes, you could find the nobles. Of varying degrees, the higher middle class that practiced what was known as the arti maggiori, the higher arts—that is, judges, notaries, money changers, fabric merchants, wool makers, silk workers, fur makers, doctors, and apothecaries—the corporation of the lower arts were brick workers, smiths, bakers, shoemakers, winemakers, and cart drivers. Under all of these were the plebs, hired workers, and farmers mostly. Whatever class they may have been, people would not go out at night. You were almost guaranteed to get mugged moving down one of the winding streets. That was not the only form of violence, however. There were a whole load of reasons for conflict and contrast. The rich merchant class could be at odds with the nobles. The peasants might be against the lords. One family may have been against another. The communal authorities may have been having issues with the bishop counts, or a powerful feudal lord could show up trying to reassert his rights 
which were gradually slipping away from him. Duels, mob riots and armed conflict were a regular thing in the Italian communes. These were early days. The so-called aristocratic or consular period of the communes. Now that we have introduced them, the communes will be main players in our story for episodes upon episodes to come. Next time, we'll have a look around an early 12th century city to see what it would have been like. But we also need to see what our emperors up north, our popes in the middle and our Normans in the south were up to. They had been very busy. As always, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua and Sean, the Matilda of Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Benjamin, Maddie, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent. And finally, at the top, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, our Sen has some company. Welcome, Paolo. Thank you very, very much for your support and your very kind message. It really means a lot. Thank you, thank you. Remember, you can get in touch via email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, Facebook and Twitter, have a look at some maps, some timelines, and other tools that you can use to help navigate our country's complicated history. Once again, thanks for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. rabbling about today then? Is that local lord oppressing us again? We don't have a lord. Really? Who's in charge? We are a commune now. I thought we were an Arcos English commune. No, just a commune. Okay. So, what are we rabbling about? We are supporting one of the two families who were fighting yesterday. Yeah? Which one? I'm not really sure. I thought we were against the bishop. No, 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 no. That was last Thursday. Oh, yeah. I thought we were... Anke, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought we were... I thought we were an anarcho. <laughs> I thought we were. I, I thought we were an anarcho. Anarcho. Syndicalist. Syndicalist commune. 
Syndicalist? Syndicalist? Whatever, you know what I'm saying. Sentire Media Hey podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.